This week on Wealth Talk, our annual tradition, superstar economist Ed Hyman joins leading portfolio manager Matthew McLennan with your 2020 global economic and market outlook. They are next on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this special 2020 Outlook edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Every year we are delighted to tap the wisdom of economic legend Ed Hyman and a leading global portfolio manager. For the fourth year in a row, we have asked Matt McLennan to do the honors. This is the second of our two-part Outlook series. In case you missed it, we tackled the 2020 prospects for the U.S. economy and markets last week, which you can see on WealthTrack.com or our YouTube channel. Ed Hyman is vice chairman of Evercore and founder and chairman of its Evercore ISI division, where he leads its economic research team. He has been voted the number one economist on Wall Street for an unprecedented 39 years by institutional investors. Matthew McLennan is head of the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management, where he runs several funds, including its flagship First Eagle Global Fund since 2008. It carries a five-star bronze medalist rating from Morningstar. In part one of our 2020 Outlook edition, Hyman predicted, as he did accurately for 2019, that the longest economic recovery on record in the U.S. would continue. He sees no signs of recession and believes that growth will actually pick up. He also forecasts that Wall Street will continue to climb a wall of worry. Matt McLennan is not as optimistic. One of his main concerns is the record level of government and corporate debt and the problems they pose to future growth and liquidity, especially in the event of a slowdown. After the record-setting bull run in the U.S., he believes the market is expensive. He is investing very selectively in super high-quality, market-dominant companies. He has a stash of cash to take advantage of sizable market declines and a significant position in gold to offset market risk. What about the global outlook? I asked them to start with one of the biggest headline events of 2019, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Get Brexit Done victory in the United Kingdom. How significant? Brexit happened originally, the original referendum, it, as, as almost the canary in the coal mine. It, it was the beginning of this pendulum swing towards populism. Mm -hmm. And so you know, maybe this is an interesting signal uh, that uh, you know, a government was elected to uh, effect a, a change. And I think one of the things that struck me when I was last in London, which was just a couple of months ago, is that despite all of the rhetoric around Brexit, London is the only real uh, mega city in Europe uh, that has vibrancy from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say anything bad about Paris or Frankfurt, but you, know, you have a, a city that has nearly 10 million people. Um, English just happens to be the language of business and science. Um, and it struck me when I was speaking with property companies in London that the big tech companies in the US were moving into London. Still. They were moving into London. Ah. And, and, so, and when I spoke to people in London, they were fatigued by the whole Brexit uh, situation. Mm -hmm. I think uh, were willing to vote um, to, to just move forward. Of course, um, the pound itself uh, is seeing this all as a good development, but um, it's not necessarily uh, so obvious uh, when, when one looks at the currency. The, the UK has a very large current account deficit. Mm -hmm. um, it has very low interest rates relative to the US. 
And it's possible that Boris Johnson experiments with um, very easy fiscal policy. And he still has to negotiate a, a lot of the elements of these trade deals. And so right. I think that there could be some uncertainty ahead for the UK, um, but I think it's also uh, a moment of potential rationality uh, of voters at this point. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, for the all these strengths, was a mm -hmm. pretty scary prospect, um, mm -hmm. talking about nationalizing companies and, um, you know, and, and regulating uh, certain sectors of the economy in a way uh, that isn't necessarily consistent with the economic heritage of the UK. Ed? So they said it was a seismic event. So it wasn't just that Boris Johnson won. It was a complete knockout. Yes. And there are many places that had never voted uh, in that direction that mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. So uh, now there's a chance uh, to re to change the, the landscape. But in order to do that, so I am informed, he has to produce economic growth mm -hmm. in order to collect on this victory. And so, as you pointed out, Matt, there's now better chance of having fiscal stimulus to get their economy going. Uh, and so that's one thing I would pick up on that. And right. the, the other, uh, let me preface it by saying that uh, I spend all my time meeting with our clients who are investors. Mm -hmm. All over the world. All over right. the world. Mm -hmm. uh, just in the, the swing through through Europe, just in Japan. And so it's like, again, in Japan, 90% of the people I surveyed, uh, with 87 uh, clients, 90% thought Trump would be reelected. And in the U.S., it's like 70, 80%. Right. I'm not saying that they like him. Yes. Uh, but the... The seismic event in the UK mm -hmm. uh, increases the odds uh, that Trump is reelected, uh, that the, the more left, uh, extreme left right. views uh, are rejected. Oh, interesting. And, and so it has a, you know, we'll see if this sticks in terms of a theme, mm -hmm. uh, but it had profound implications around the world, particularly for us uh, as uh, we get into to 2020. Right. Trade uncertainty. Let's let's go there, Matt. And uh, you know these on again, off again trade talks. Why are they such a big deal to the markets? Number one, trade talks on market goes up. Trade talks off market goes down. Why so much of an impact? Well, I, I think one of the reasons is just the uh, expectational uncertainty is always weighed on markets. Sometimes right. the uncertainty is worse than the the event itself. I think there's also the long memory of the market that you know tariffs when we went back a couple of generations ago. Uh, were part of the whole mix around the Great Depression and, and, and things didn't necessarily sure. end well. And then there's the kind of nebulous concerns about uh, deglobalization, that you know, we, we went through a generational period of globalization that was good for earnings power and uh, multinationals. How does that play out in, re, in, in reverse? How do companies relocate their supply chains? This mm -hmm. is all uncertainty for markets. But I think uh, from, from my standpoint, there's a, there's a broader uh, concern here, and that is that the incidentals of any given trade discussion are actually minor relative to the seismic shift that's happened over the last decade, which is the emergence of China as a scale player on the right. geopolitical scene with a different, uh, a different set of values, uh, a story that people expected to be one of convergence, but is now clearly one of divergence. And so these are more perplexing uh, questions, I think, for the market to uh, reflect on. Ed, trade uncertainty, how big a deal is it for the uh, for the global economy? It's a big deal. We've had, okay. I mentioned the 
third mini recession. Uh, China is the epicenter of the manufacturing sector. And right. the third mini recession that we've gone through has really started with China and with the trade. And I, th I really couldn't uh, embellish the points that Matt made. That, those were excellent, I think, in terms of describing the source of it. I will say uh, that the daily fluctuations generate more attention than I think it deserves mm -hmm. because the market has basically gone up. Uh, it went down last year mm -hmm. uh, when the Fed tightened. Right, December and of this, 18. And this right. started, and all the things you've mentioned come to mind, like is this a 1929 redo? At this point, uh, from what I can tell, talking to investors around the world, people have pretty well said, look, we're not going to have much of a trade deal anymore. You know, we're, there's China and the United States, and I don't know how they're going to coexist. Mm -hmm. They might not, they might be in different spheres, you know, in the next decade. Maybe they go back and find common ground, but maybe they don't. Maybe it's just, you know, we separate and the two big superpowers move forward. Uh, but no doubt, as you see, the, you know, the tweets can move the market, you know, right. a couple percent any, any time. But I think the path to least resistance uh, is determined more by how the economy, how S&P earnings do uh, in the long term. Uh, at this point, I think the markets are beginning to sort of tune out a little bit mm -hmm. uh, on, on this. And I've sort of come to think we won't have a deal in the true sense of a deal. Right. Maybe little deals here and there. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to have a Cold War or a trade war, you know, for a very extended period of time. Uh, I think both both countries would do better working together, mm -hmm. but it's, I'm not sure it's it's really that bad working apart. Uh, but it definitely has hit capital spending around the world in countries like Germany, which have been centric to China. The trade wars have. The, 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 trade, yes. the trade war and the trade war uncertainty. Right. Matt, let me ask you about China, because there was a, a what I found to be a, just a stunning headline in the FT recently, which was that, you know, Beijing orders the removal of foreign com computers and software by 2022 from all government buildings, all, you know, publicly owned uh, public companies that are owned by the, the state, where there are a lot of them. Um, so when you're talking about a, a divergence of systems, what you know, what's the significance of China making the decision, number one, that they are in fact saying, hey, Microsoft, you know, Dell, Oracle, whomever, HP, uh, we're gonna throw you out of the country. We're not gonna buy your stuff anymore. We're gonna make everything domestically. What does that do to world trade? So it matters because China's a scale player. Right. And it, it's not as though you have uh, one regime that's uh, a small fraction of the size of the US economy. China is um, and has been the, the major contributor to global uh, nominal growth over the last uh, decade. And mm -hmm. so uh, the direction they, they go in is going to have ripple effects for the world economy. And it's not just in, in the trade sphere, it's in the political sphere. Yes. I think one of the other things that's happened this year has been the, the protests in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we, we've seen that bottom up. If, you know, Hong Kong property stocks have been pretty weak uh, this, this, this year, as you can imagine. An opportunity for P you at Potentially. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I will say is that the equilibrium uh, that we're moving towards is, is a much more complex one. Uh, Ed raised a good point before, you know, is this a, is this a new Cold War? We will only know after the fact. Right. Um, but even beyond that, China is dealing with other challenges. Um, 
the growth in leverage in the Chinese economy over this cycle has been simply astounding. Um, so the debt. The debt yes. uh, is, has grown much more dramatically than uh, we saw in the US cycle leading up to 2007. Um, they need to uh, adjust at a time where perhaps they won't have the big trade surpluses that they had in yesteryear. Mm -hmm. uh, and they already have very easy fiscal policy. And um, adjusting to this reality for China, whether it's from a leverage a debt standpoint or whether it's from a geopolitical standpoint or uh, trade relations has become a whole lot more complicated. And so unusual things could happen uh, you know, in mm -hmm. an economy that's very large. And, and the final thing I'll say is that um, the Chinese have been moving out on their own in terms of some of the architectural elements of the world economy, um, you know, the, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, some of the lending to foreign states uh, right. against strategic port assets and, and the like, but also massive investment uh, in alternative uh, payments architectures uh, to compete with SWIFT and, and, and other global payment architectures. Mm. And so um, this, th I think we're at the, at the very you know, beginning of a more complicated period here. Ed, at ISI, Evercore ISI, you have an, an entire group that's dedicated to uh, researching China. So you know, what's, what are they telling you? What's, what's the outlook for China's economy in 2020? So uh, first, they're fairly uh, cautious on the outlook. Mm -hmm. They emphasize that uh, the growth in China is going to slow, slow, slow. I'm not quite as focused on that because of the basis effect. I mean, they can't keep growing 10%. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they can keep growing 5%, but the, they can still contribute to the world economy. Right. Uh, but uh, at the moment, uh, everything we see is still a weaker uh, China economy. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Matt, the, the past has been pretty complicated yeah, <laughs> as well sure. as, as the current. And I'm maybe sure it's the, prologue. <laughs> maybe it's the future. Uh, but I'll just take it a, a day at a time. Right. I don't, I don't think it is a game changer for 2020. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, uh, there's a certain need by both countries to get yes. something done. Uh, I don't think she particularly wants to have a new regime in Washington, and, and Trump obviously would like to get reelected. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think both uh, are, are pretty pragmatic. And I would, uh, in closing on this, say that China really needs to have uh, internal growth. They mm -hmm. need to keep- Yes, because people employed. And, and new people employed. Yes. So they're right. They they're going to try to keep this going no matter what. And as you said, Matt, that they're doing it with fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, whatever. Of interest is in the first Eagle funds that although you invest in some companies for their various fundamental reasons that do business in China, you're not invested yet in any Chinese companies. Uh, we're open-minded, right? Uh, but uh, for for us. You, the rubber meets the road, always one company at a time. And so the challenge for us has been, there've been many companies that have been growing quickly in China, but they've really been growing their capital structures quickly, um, not necessarily intrinsic value per share. And, and it's been difficult for us to find um, necessarily the governance structure we like, uh, the free cash flow generation, and the return of that free cash flow to shareholders. So, you know, we're open-minded, you know, we look at all countries around the world for potential investment opportunities, but it is its own bottom-up signal to mm -hmm. us that we've struggled to identify uh, companies on the mainland. And, right. you know, I think the, the slowdown in growth in China has to be seen in a global context. You know, we talked uh, earlier about the slowdown uh, in the, that the U.S. went through over the last year. 
But maybe with this mix shift to services globally, um, we're, we're just moving towards a slower growing economy. You know, we've, we've had in the rear vision mirror a fairly muddled through economic recovery, but that's been enough for mm -hmm. unemployment rates to come down all around the world, the US, China, Japan, Europe. And maybe what the bond markets are telling us now, negative yields in Europe mm -hmm. and, and Japan and low bond yields in the US, is that the prospects for nominal growth globally are much lower uh, than um, perhaps what we've been experiencing in, in prior decades. Would you agree with that, Ed? Uh, it's over my head. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so as, as, as Matt, who's a, a student of the money supply, you mm -hmm. mentioned, so money growth in the U.S. has just taken off. It's accelerated. It's, it's growing by 7%. And uh, we just, this week, we got uh, another month's data of uh, bank deposits and mm -hmm. bank loans in China. They're growing 12%. I mean, there's no, uh, you know, pushback on that. Right. And Maybe I should clarify that real growth as opposed to uh, <laughs> nominal growth. But uh, so I, it, it, it just seems to me as though there's, Everywhere I look, there's money, money, money. Yes. Uh, whether it's a soccer team in London uh, or building buildings in Japan uh, or the stock market here in the U.S. And, of course, uh, negative yields mm -hmm. means that people have so much money, they'll even give it to you if you don't give, them, give it all back. That disturbs me. And, I, and I actually, mean, gold I just, looks pretty I good, too, in that regard. Right. I, I don't get it. But as far as the, the kind of the global economy, with all of this money, we've just had Christine Lagarde has taken over as the, the president of the ECB. And initially, she's saying that she's not going to change Mario Draghi's very loose monetary policies. She's trying to get European governments to, to uh, in basically do fiscal stimulus. So uh, what's it going to get us as this continuation and maybe acceleration of monetary easing, Ed, as far as the outlook for the global economy for 2020? What's it going to get us? More growth. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is, a, as Matt mentioned a couple of times, this is unprecedented. There's so much money out there. And as you point out, when you say it's unprecedented, it makes you nervous. Negative rates it makes, yes. it, makes you nervous. And that's why the market, I think, is climbing a wall of worry. Maybe we'll continue to climb a wall of worry. Right. Maybe it, well, people will never get comfortable. Uh, but what it's gotten us so far uh, is a long ways over a decade from where we were in 2008 and 2009. Right. Well, I, I travel everywhere. So like Stockholm, it's doing a lot better than it was a decade ago. And, and Frankfurt, to this extent, and like, I'm like you, when I go to London, uh, I'm surprised. Uh, at how well it's doing. I was just in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, mm -hmm. and there are cranes uh, there, but uh, it's not pretty. Uh, but uh, policymakers are trying to extend this expansion right. so that we grow uh, further, like we talked about, China needs to grow. Mm -hmm. But uh, they'll, they'll be held to pay eventually. And that's, that's the, the interesting question. It, it may not just be unprecedented, but unnatural. Uh, negative interest rates. And, and in a sense, you know, you know it, it is paradoxical to me that a decade into a business cycle recovery, German banks hit new lows this year. Well, the stocks, the stocks. of German banks have yeah. hit new lows this That's year. That's right. And, and, well, they, and, they can't and, make any money, right? Well, negative interest rates right. goes to the heart of the, you know, the deposit franchise earnings of a bank. And if the bank's not making any money, how are they going to sustainably uh, extend their loan portfolios and grow. Uh, so in, in some ways, 
negative interest rates are harmful. They also force households to have to save more over mm -hmm. the long term if they're going to meet any given retirement goals because of the need for real returns. So in the short term, I think they've been uh, stimulative to growth. But in the long term, I think they're corrosive uh, to the, the, the structure of the banking sector, um, the savings patterns of, mm -hmm. of households. And um, they send an unnatural price signal. At the end of the day, if, if you have 1% you know, inflation and 1% growth in, in Europe, for example, or in, in, in Japan, a little lower, you'd expect interest rates to be close to that. For them to be so negative um, tells you that the economies wouldn't feel as healthy as they do today uh, if we didn't have that gap. Right. Um, and so whether it's in the United States, or whether it's in Europe or Japan or China, I see for the first time in my career this moment in time uh, where no matter where I look, um, that the major economies of the world wouldn't be healthy, I don't think, were it not for extreme policy distortion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that tells me that things aren't as healthy as they seem on the surface. This program is about building financial security to last a lifetime for uh, individuals. And, uh, and it's also obviously about making money, Ed. So <laughs> how can we make some money in 2020? The first thing I would share with you uh, is that uh, I think that owning something is the best idea. Just be invested in it, something. Because I think that there, there's so much money it's, it's likely to push prices right. in general up. House prices, art prices. Mm -hmm. The main feeling I get, we're still in a very easy money regime and the money's everywhere. People cannot wait to buy a sports team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're in that league. But you personally, a year ago, you said you're a warrior, so you always hold a lot of cash. I still have a lot of cash. Right. But, I mean, is, is there a, are, do you see an opportunity in 2020 that you'd say, hey, I'd like to own some of that that maybe you... Not in particular. No. I, like, I, like, I like real estate. Mm -hmm. I like the ideas that Matt had. I like FIS. Mm -hmm. I like Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, I like uh, any asset that you could show me, Right. Uh, I'm interested in considering whether or not I think it might do better. Uh, I don't particularly like bonds mm -hmm. uh, because they're really overpriced, in my opinion. Um, Matt, so, you know, uh, I, as I said, our mission is building long-term financial security. That's certainly one of your missions for your investors. Yeah, certainly, and, and I think if you start with that uh, mission uh, front and center, I think one has to recognize if the, the goal is to find um, real assets that are of interest to, to Ed's suggestion, um, I think one ought to recognize up front that the United States doesn't have a monopoly on good companies, mm -hmm. and, and nor will it have a monopoly on currency strength. And so part of the, the process ought to be to, to try and identify interesting businesses that exist outside the United States as well as inside the United States, and to have some element of currency diversification. Uh, you know, one of the things that's helped the dollar be so strong in the last few years is that current, the interest rates, as low as they are in the United States, have been well above um, where they are in, say, Europe or Japan. Mm -hmm. um, the next time we have a recession, whenever that is, um, that interest rate differential could go away. And uh, it could mean other currencies, such as the yen, are stronger uh, at certain points in time. And so things that don't feel obvious can sometimes uh, play out when you least expect it. And if we don't have a recession, if the Fed lets the economy uh, run hot and we get more inflation, 
uh, and interest rates don't go up commensurately, again, there can be a moment of policy uncertainty and credibility that could affect the currency. And so I think having some element of currency diversification is going to be important. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us for our annual 2020 2020 outlook. (laughs) Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan. And best to you in 2020 as well, Ed and Matt. Thank you. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. Sometimes that means adding inspiration to your life. This week's action point is designed to do that. It is read Paul Volcker's 2018 autobiography, Keeping at It, The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government. Volcker, who died recently at the age of 92, is considered one of the greatest Fed chairmen in history for breaking the back of soaring inflation in this country in the late 1970s and early 80s. But he had to jack up interest rates and induce a recession to do it making him one of the most unpopular Fed chairman as well. We have been enjoying the fruits of his determination and courage for the last 40 years in the form of low inflation and interest rates. As the current Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said about Mr. Volcker, he believed there was no higher calling than public service. His life exemplified the highest ideals, integrity, courage, and a commitment to do what was best for all Americans. Keeping at it reminds us of how important those ideals are and how much they can accomplish. Well, next week, as we celebrate the new year, Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan return with part one of our 2020 outlook with their focus on the U.S. economy and markets. We'll also have a special treat for you on our website, a podcast with Nobel laureate economist Robert Schiller about the powerful stories driving the economy. You can listen on WealthTrack.com. Thanks for spending 2019 with us. Have a fabulous New Year's celebration. We look forward to making the new year ahead a profitable and a productive one for all of us.